so on Wednesday, I get to educate teenagers about a movie that, that predates them even being born. Do you all remember The Fly with Jeff Goldblum? It's one of those movies now that if we probably went back and watched it, we would go, oh, goodness. Like, you know, it'd probably be so bad. But the, uh, the tagline to The Fly, it's, it's actually here on the movie poster, was be afraid, be very afraid. Have you heard that phrase before? People, you kind of, you know, this is where it originated from. If you Google, be afraid, be very afraid, it will give you 301 million websites to click on. In fact, if you even type be afraid, Google thinks if you don't want to be afraid, your very next option is going to be be afraid, be very afraid. So that's, that phrase has kind of sunk into our culture. We've used it. We've heard it. And we're probably living it because some of us, not everybody, but some of us, as we talk about giants in our life, are wrestling with a giant of fear. We're we afraid of some things that we really don't need to be afraid of. Let me give you some examples. We're going to run through them on the screen. Hit the first one. So here's this. You've got a 0.00001% chance of dying in an airplane crash. But some of us are afraid of flying, right? On the other hand, the car insurance industry estimates that the average driver will be involved in three or four car crashes in their lifetime, and the odds of dying in a car crash are 1% to 2%. So we... None of us, like, have this fear. Well, most of us don't have a fear of getting into our car. We did it, came here. But we have some people that go, I'm just, I don't want to get on that plane. Especially, I just saw the news this week. I don't want to do that anymore. But really, the, the statistics say you are way exponentially more likely to die in a car crash than you are in an airplane. Here's another thing that people are normally afraid of. Afraid of heights? That's me. It's the second most reported fear. Your chance of being injured and falling, jumping, or being pushed from a high place is 1 in 65,092. Chance of your identity being sold is 1 in 200. But we don't really walk around with a whole lot of fear. We don't pull out our credit card at Walmart and go, what do I do? But I can tell you, like, on a, I can watch a movie, and if somebody comes near to the edge, I start to, like, get uncomfortable sitting in my chair. Here's another interesting one. Fear of being killed by a bolt of lightning. The odds of that happening are 1 in 2.3 million. This blows my mind. You're more likely to be struck by a meteorite, one in 700,000 chances. I don't know which is worse. I've never, I, I have known people have been struck by lightning. I don't know anybody struck by a meteorite. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but we'll go with it. Dogs, bark is really worse than their bite. Your chance of suffering a dog bite is one in 137,694. You're much more likely to be injured mowing the lawn. One in 3,623. Here's another one. Sharks, no fear of mine. You're much more likely to be killed by your spouse than a shark. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. And, and look at the odds. You, some of you should probably just head to the beach and go swimming today because you've got a better chance. Okay? Roller coasters, people are scared of them. If you stand in that line, the chance of an injury on a roller coaster is 1 in 300 million. You've got a 1 in 20,000 chance of being hurt with fireworks during the 4th of July. So some of the things that are like naturally make us afraid really aren't things that we should be afraid of. Now here is an interesting, this is not on the stat, not on the screen, but you know in the West, kind of where we live in the Western world, people in the West take more medication to get to sleep at night than the rest of the world will take in a lifetime. Crazy? Because 
We've got all kinds of things going. We don't just sleep worse than other people. We have things that are going on in our mind and our heart and our soul that cause us at night to turn out the lights. And for some of us, we have so many things going, we can't, we can't even rest and clear our mind. And for some of us, those things are rooted way deep down inside in fear. What's going to happen at work? What's going to happen with my kids? What's going to happen in the lawsuit? What's going to happen with my finances? What's going to happen with my marriage? All of these things, they just, they create this culture of fear and it becomes a giant in our life <coughs> that keeps us from moving forward. Now, some fears, I, I want to give you this, let me read you this definition of fear. I love this. It says this, um, fear grips us when we believe that apart from or in spite of our best efforts, something undesirable is going to happen that we can't stop. It's a pretty good definition. Let me read it to you again. Fear grips us whenever we believe that apart from or in spite of our best efforts, something undesirable is going to happen that we can't stop. Now, some fears, some fears are rational fears. When I say rational, it means the facts make sense with the fear. If you got a bill in the mail from your credit card statement, I mean, if your credit card company has got your credit card statement and it shows you how much you owe and you reflect back on the years of when you put furniture in the house and you did this and you did that and you see that, that you know, now they give you if, you, if you just pay the minimum payment, then you're going to have this credit card paid off in 2097 and you're going to pay this much in interest. And you get that statement and you're looking at your checking account and you go, these things don't, they don't hold hands very well. That could be a rational fear. That could be a fear that you go, man, I can't control this. It makes sense. But then some of us wrestle with a giant of irrational fear. That's when the facts don't meet the fear. For example, and being in youth ministry for, for lots of years, I, I meet parents, moms and dads. A good example is they, they don't let their kids do anything. Kids are in a bubble. They don't let the kids go on mission trips. They don't let their kids go out and hang out with friends. They don't let their kids uh, go other places. And I'm not critiquing parenting skills. There may be good reasons not to let your kid go somewhere or go that, but for, for many of those parents, it's an irrational fear. I'm afraid that I, if I let go of control, something that, there's something that I can't control that's bad that could happen. And what that does, when a giant of fear comes into our life, it affects our relationships um, it affects our joy, and fear will come in, that giant, and it, it will keep you from living the life that God created for you to live. But if you're there, and I know some of us today, you go, the giant, my giant's not fear. You talked about some last week, giant of rejection, the giant of addiction. You might go, that's mine, that's coming. But for some of us, the giant of fear grips us, and I want you to know this, you're, you're not alone. In fact, if you go to the Scripture, God's word. The command that we are given most from Genesis to Revelation is the command to fear not. So if God has said over and over and over again through his scripture to people along the way and to us, hey, you don't have to be afraid. Fear not. If you're wrestling with this giant, at least know that you're in good company, okay? Amazon um, has, the, has the ability when, when you read books and things like that online uh, or in, in an ebook, they can track what people highlight or what people underline. And so they can go through Hunger Games, they can go through whatever books somebody might be reading, and if somebody <coughs> highlights a, 
passage. They, they have all of that information. So they have that information on digital Bibles as well, the ones that Amazon through their you know, platforms have. And so they can tell us and have what the most underlying verse in the Bible is from their users. You would think it would be like John 3.16, right? I mean, that would make sense. Psalm 23, maybe the Lord's Prayer. Well, here's what Amazon says is the most underlying verse in our Bible. It's from Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you're not alone. And sometimes if you go, I'm not really, fear is not something in my life. Sometimes fear masquerades itself as anxiety, dread, tension, stomach problems. There's all kinds of different things that fear will, will uh, reveal itself in. And so this morning and this week, as I can tell you, if you're a parent of a teenager, a lot of our teenagers have the giant of fear in their life, the fear of the future, the fear of dating, not really dating, but the fear of what happens and what, if it goes wrong, which ties into what fear holds a hand with, we'll talk about probably next week, rejection. But we're not just wrestling with fear ourselves. We're wrestling as disciples of how do we disciple our own teenagers, our own children, our, our, our spouses. How do we help others do the same when it comes to love God, love people, and if fear is the giant that's keeping us from doing that well? This is apropos for us. So I want us to go to Matthew chapter 14 because we're not going to go back to um, David and Goliath. We're rooting everything in David and Goliath. In fact, in your small group today, <coughs> you'll go back to 1 Samuel and uh, read a passage out of that David and Goliath story and talk about fear some. But if you go back and remember last week when we talked about it, fear was a major storyline in the David and, David and Goliath narrative. All of the Israelites were in fear. In fact, we saw that several of them uh, went to the battle line, saw Goliath, and the scripture says they turned around and ran. For 40 days, the giant came out and mocked them morning and night, said, hey, come on. And, and because of fear, nobody went forward. Well, we're going to read a pretty familiar passage of scripture this morning. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, we're going to read the first half of that. It says, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. Now let's, let's journey in our own minds back and place ourselves in the shoes or maybe the sandals of the disciples. If we read this passage of the context of where this verse comes along, we see that a lot has been going on in the week, week and the days leading up to this event that we've probably read before. The very beginning of the chapter, we find out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, he was the guy that Jesus' cousin, guy that came and, and began to lay the way to, to tell everybody that the Messiah was here. He was the first person to recognize who Jesus was as the Messiah 
when he was in his mother's womb, when John the Baptist was still a, a baby inside his mom and pregnant Mary with Jesus inside, they come into the same room. The scripture records that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb. I mean, embryo John the Baptist gets who Jesus is. He's, he's this person who baptized Jesus. He's this influential figure in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And because of politics and because of being bold for what is true, he's martyred for the faith and his head's cut off. And the disciples, days before this event, have just gotten the news. Now put yourself in their shoes. The person who you've looked up to, the person who was doing what you do spiritually before you even started doing it, an icon, a legend. The government's just taken him and killed him. That, that probably for us puts, if we're in their shoes, probably puts a bit of uncertainty, maybe a bit of fear into our heart of, well, what's, who's, who's coming for us? And we find out when we read this that Jesus, if you go back to chapter 14, <coughs> Jesus has heard the news and he's gone to withdraw to try to get away to process and to mourn and to grieve the loss of his cousin. And as he's gone to grieve and to mourn, a bunch of people show up in the middle of nowhere that have diseases, infirmities, handicaps, because they've heard and found out where Jesus is and they know about him. So, so people have started to come by the thousands. So Jesus and thousands who've come, needy people, who is the buffer between Jesus and the thousands? Twelve disciples. Maybe some other guys. So they, they're probably emotionally exhausted from the news of hearing about John the Baptist. And the fears began to sit in. And now, while they've tried to get away to recover and mourn, here come over 5,000 people. And Jesus has the grand idea of, hey, I'll start healing them. So, and I don't know how it all worked, but I assume he's like, all right, guys, get to work, you know, get them in lines, you know, figure it out. And so the disciples are now managing all of this chaos in the middle of nowhere so that Jesus isn't overwhelmed, getting people in lines or whatever they're going to do so that they can, they can have a moment with a master to experience healing. And this is all happening in the midst of their emotional turmoil. Then afterwards, we find out that everybody out there is hungry because it's the middle of nowhere. And Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, hey, we need to do something. Y'all go, y'all go get them fed. And we have this miracle that happens. We can read that some of the time. where Jesus feeds 5,000 plus. 5,000 probably is just representative of the men, not the women and children. And so the disciples are now taking care of food. So I would assume this, if the 5,000 people who've been standing in line to meet Jesus are hungry, I would bet the disciples are too. At this point, because of the emotions of the day, they're probably not hungry. They're probably hangry, right? I mean, they're tired. They're hungry, they're emotionally spent, they're spiritually exhausted at the end of the day. And Jesus says, hey, get in the boat. That's what we see, we pick up in verse 22. Jesus says, get in the boat, and you, got, you go on, I'll dismiss the crowd. Jesus is even aware of the emotional state of his disciples, I'm assuming. Jesus says, you guys, you guys head on, I'll, I'll wrap up here and dismiss everybody. And he does, and then Jesus goes away to pray. And then somewhere between three in the morning and six in the morning, the fourth watch of the night, the disciples have been on the boat, maybe going to try to get some rest, but we find out that they are being buffeted by waves. So now they're all up in the middle of the night, throwing water out of the boat, trying to make sure the boat stays upright. And they look out in the middle of what is like a storm, some high winds and things like that. 
and they see Jesus walking towards them. Now, there's something for us to grab here when we talk about fear. Fear often feeds on the things the disciples are experiencing. Fear feeds on a lack of rest. If you're just burning the midnight oil, burning both ends of the candle, and the giant of fear is something you battle with, if you are exhausted, guess who's going to take the lead in the battle? The giant. If you are, uh, even have physical needs not being met, hunger, things like that, it, it makes fear better. If you're lonely, tired, all of those different things feed the giant of fear. And we see it. And, and here's what I want to give you the example. Because the disciples react in a way that says they were, they were terrified, is the word the scripture uses. Terrified. Not, not like concerned. Not like, is that somebody walking on the water back there? Literally terrified. And the grown men cry out, it's a ghost. Now, I don't know if it would be the same, but let's take away some of the circumstances. Let's just say they were well rested. Let's say there's no John the Baptist, emotional, there's no grieving. They're just having a regular day. And they're just out on the lake, fishing. They got a little vacation, they got a little break. So no emotions. They're not tired. They're actually well-rested. It's in the middle of the day, and there's no storm going on. Bright, clear day. The lake is smooth. And they see Jesus come walking on the water towards them. In your mind, what do you think their reaction's like? Is it terrified and crying out? Probably not. Could be. But I imagine them going, is that Jesus? Hey, hey, come up here. Come look at this. Is that Jesus? Is that you? And Jesus is like, hey, guys. You know what? I don't know what he'd say. It's a totally different situation, though, in the midst of the storm. It's a totally different situation when they're emotionally spent. It's a totally different situation when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they've been working all day. And fear presents itself and it feeds. That giant gets bigger and bigger. In the midst of that, they're terrified and they cry out. But look what Jesus does, because this is the heart of God. Look at verse 27. As soon as they're afraid, it says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them. Because Jesus isn't interested in the giant of fear having power over their life. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, hey, take heart, calm down, catch your breath. It's I, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. And what we begin to learn here, and we're going to see through the rest of the passage as we walk through it, and the answer for us who are dealing with a giant of fear is that the antidote to fear is not courage. The antidote to fear is faith. See, we think if I can just be stronger, if I can just be more courageous, then I'll defeat the giant of fear. But what we learned last week is the giant's already been killed. Jesus has already won the battle over all of these things. He's already won the battle over fear. The antidote to us for our fear and to defeat the giant, to get out from underneath its shadow, is not courage, but faith. And we'll see in a second that the soundtrack of that faith is worship. I want us to go a little bit further in verse 28. Peter answered him. Again, the storm's going on. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now look at this. This is great. Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. See, Peter, we love Peter. Peter's like one of the three of, three of the 12 disciples that's kind of in Jesus' inner circle. Peter's the spokesman for him. Peter's the one that talks and, and leads. He ends up becoming the leader of the church uh, in, in Israel. So Peter's the first one, and we credit a lot with him, but, but it's interesting. Peter's faith isn't just isn't this, you know, supernatural, crazy, oh my goodness, look at Peter. I mean, Peter's faith, Peter's like, hey, if it's you, if that's really you walking on water, call me out. And Jesus says, come. And Peter starts walking on water by faith in the midst of a storm, in the midst of high winds, because he has faith in the word of Jesus when Jesus said, come. And then you, I mean, you, some of you have grown up with a story. You know what happens. Peter's looking at Jesus and he's walking on water. And then Matthew, who is there, gives us the scenario of what happens. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he's looking at Jesus, he's walking on water. When his faith is being applied and moving forward, he's overcoming fears that everyone else in the boat is still dealing with. But as he's looking at Jesus, he starts walking on water, but the scripture is very clear when he starts thinking about the wind and he loses focus on the master and he starts looking at the circumstances and he starts dwelling on the fear again is when he starts to sink. And here's the thing. Peter was never in any danger whatsoever. We talk about Jesus having already killed the giant and it doesn't feel like it, but you realize this, the storm, the winds at that time literally had zero power. It felt like it. The disciples were experiencing it in the midst of it. If you went, hey, this storm has no power, they would be, hey, why don't you shut your mouth and throw some water out and hold on because the storm, the winds, you say have no power. What do you think's happening? They experienced it. They felt like it. They, they perceived that the storm had power. They perceived that the giant was still there and that the giant had power. But we see that at any moment, and when Jesus deemed fit, as soon as Jesus got into the boat, what happened to the winds? They disappeared because in reality, they never had any power whatsoever. They were all, they were all at, the, at the beck and call of the creator. But sometimes we, sometimes we lose sight of that. Because the things that are going on in our life, the rational or irrational fears, whatever it is, both, both types of fears have power over us. We see the wind, and we see the circumstances, and we even cry and we go, God, why, why doesn't God do something about the wind now? Why didn't Jesus calm the wind when he was walking on the water <coughs> instead of when he got in the boat? You know what, you want the answer for that? I do too, I have no clue. I don't know. I don't know why when Jesus saw the disciples, he didn't just go make the wind stop, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter if he made the wind stop outside the boat or inside the boat. <coughs> At no point did the circumstances or the wind or the fear actually have power. How often are we like Peter? The giant of fear that's dead has no power, speaks into our life. Circumstances 
sometimes even rational circumstances, cause this churning in our stomach. Cause us to respond to people in ways that are not faith-filled, but fear-filled. And all along, Jesus is trying to remind us the giant is dead. You don't have to be afraid any longer. The antidote to fear is faith. And the soundtrack is worship. So what do we do? Some of you go, man, I don't, I'm not, you might go, I don't really have a whole lot of fear. Maybe you need to take some notes for somebody sitting next to you. Maybe take some notes for somebody that you're going to have a conversation with because God brings them into your circle. And you may, you may not have to wrestle with a giant of fear, but you may be able to take this passage of Scripture and some truth and apply it to somebody else's life. But if you are the person that's going, man, I think this might be a giant in my life, let me give you a couple of things to try this week. And the first thing I would love you to try, and you're going to have to be intentional about this. You're going to have to put some time on the calendar. I want to challenge you to meditate on Scripture. And we talk about meditating. I'm not talking about like Eastern religion. You don't have to get in some kind of like pose, guys, that like our, our muscles won't bend into, you know, stretch to any longer. We're not, we're not talking about regulating our breathing and things like that. We're simply talking about hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus and understanding what he's saying. Because the more that we hear Jesus over and over and over again, and the more that we see Jesus over and over and over again, our faith is built. And when our faith is built, fear diminishes. It's, that's true in just about anything. If, if I told you that I could dunk a basketball, you would rightfully not believe that. But if five, six, seven, eight people every week came in and they said, man, we, every week can we play basketball with Brett? And you wouldn't believe it. He dunks on us all the time. You he heard it over and over again. You would you would start to believe it. Then if you started showing up and you started seeing it, the first time you'd be like, how did that happen? I don't understand. But the more you saw it and the more you heard it, the more you would believe it, the stronger your faith would be. And so the more we hear Jesus, the more we see Jesus, the stronger our faith becomes and faith is the antidote to fear. So what does meditating look like? I mean, it means taking a passage of scripture. Actually, and I gave you a psalm in the parent gap if you want to click on that, to, to read over and over as a family, maybe even start meditating on it. It's taking a passage of Scripture. It might be a verse. It might be a chapter. I don't know. It's up to you. And we start spending time with it, not just reading. Oh, I read it today. But spending long periods of time with that passage of Scripture, thinking about every word, thinking about every phrase, reading it with emphasis on different words to see how it sounds, Praying through it, reading it enough times and then just being quiet and letting God speak to us through it. See, I've got, I've got a new hobby I'm really excited about because I am, I am a fairly firm believer that when I meet Jesus face-to-face -face in heaven, I don't know if it's going to happen. I really would wish, like, there would be like a giant Slurpee machine and uh, heaven would be Slurpees and beef jerky all the day long. It'd be fantastic. And cotton candy. And he has a cotton candy over there. I've just started over the last couple of weeks making my own beef jerky. So this is changing my life, right? <laughs> experimenting with all. I got three bags at home, experimenting with different things. I'm going to try this. Well, sometimes you 
just put a rub on the meat and then dehydrate it, like a steak seasoning or something like that to give the beef jerky flavor. Other times you marinate it. So last night I pulled out of the refrigerator strips of meat that had been sitting in a marinade that had some Dr. Pepper in it and some other stuff that was really good. Let it sit and soak overnight so that when you bite into it, when it's completed, it's that beef jerky transformation, it tastes fantastic. And that idea of what's happening in that refrigerator, that marinade, is the picture of meditation. We're just sitting on God's word and letting it just soak into us, saturating every part of us, thinking through that passage of scripture. How does it apply to my morning? How does it apply to my night? How does it apply to my afternoon? Does this apply to my kids? Does this apply to my spouse? Does this apply to my work? God, I want to talk to you about this. God, I want to understand it. God, I want it to become such a part of me that I understand and know your heart on this passage of Scripture better than I know myself. That's the idea of meditating. And what happens as we meditate, what we begin to figure out is that worry or fear, fear and God's Word do not hold the same place in our life. One pushes out the other. Louis Giglio, who wrote Goliath Must Fall, the book that we've taken this series from. I, I got done telling Dave and Goliath's story on Wednesday night. And a girl, she's a visitor. I was standing right down here. She came up and she said, hey, I'm going to do this whole Bible study that you just did at FCA tomorrow. And she said, can I get a citation? And I said, yeah, it's, it's 1 Samuel. And so she's like, no, no, no. Like, can I get a citation? And I said, you mean like where it's at? And she goes, no, 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 no. A citation. And I said, like, I've got the script. You want like, I mean, I type it out for our small group ministers. She's like, no, no, no. She's like laughing. She's, and I said, I got to record. I'm trying to figure out what she wants. She's like, no, no. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell this whole thing. She said, what's your name? So I can give you credit. And I said, oh, you want credit for the sermon? And she goes, yes. I said, okay, Louis Giglio. Because uh, he wrote the book, Goliath Must Fall. They're just ripping off and preaching to you. And she was like, oh, okay. So she went to FCA, I'm sure, and said, I heard Louis Giglio on Wednesday night. Uh, <laughs> And somebody went, what? He tells a story about how he dealt with some issues in his life and some emotional issues, some fears, things like that. And he ended up seeing a doctor and getting some medication. He's talking about medication. The medication he was using to relieve his anxiety was working. And as he was with a follow-up appointment with his doctor, he asked his doctor, he said, hey, how does this work? How does this medicine, this medicine actually makes me feel better. It makes me less anxious. It takes the fear away. He said, How does that, what does it do? And the doctor said, well, he said, you have a computer at home. He said, you know, along the way, your computer has a cache, it stores information, and you need to go and clear the cache occasionally to keep the, the computer running at, you know, its, at its best speeds and processes. And Louis said, yeah, I get that. And he said, well, your brain is the same way. And he said, what the medication does in layman's term is it, it clears the cache out. And so all of the things that you've been dwelling on, all the fears that have been sitting right in front of you, that medication helps your brain dump that. And he said, that's why, he said, when you're taking medication, sometimes you feel like you're forgetting short-term things. You forget where I put my keys and things like that because that's what the medication does. It clears the cash. Very similar to what God's word does when we meditate on it. It clears the cash and fills it up with truth. That's how meditation helps us defeat fear. So if you're dealing with it, set some time this week. Just try it. See what the spiritual discipline of meditation might do in the midst of your worry. And here's the other thing. We said that it's, uh, the, the antidote to fear is faith, and the soundtrack 
that it lays on his worship. That's the second thing. If you're battling the giant of fear, is to, is to, be, to intentionally worship. That could be music and singing. It could be prayer. could be meditation, other disciplines. It could be getting in-depth Bible study. But you'll find you've probably experienced this at some point. You came with a heavy burden, and you walked into a worship service. I've experienced this at camp, things like that. You got so many things on your mind. And as you start actually giving your heart to worship, I'm not talking about going through the motions. You actually start giving your heart to worship, you, you feel everything else begin to disappear. It's because the Word of God and worship cannot fill the same place as worry and fear because it builds our faith. I'll tell you, last story, I'm going to let you go to your small group. We're talking about this in our home this week. We start talking about it earlier. We want you guys to start talking about it at home this week so that when your kids come on Wednesday night, they've already heard it. We want you to be the lead discipler and us as a church has come alongside you and support. So we would love when a kid walks in and hears this message, they go, yeah, we've been talking about fear at home. So this is just backing up when my parents have already been leading. Because my home's a little bit different and I don't have teenagers in the home and I'm, I'm usually a week ahead of y'all, luckily, preparing. We, talk, we talked about fear some this week. And I, I was asking my kids about being afraid and, and Rayleigh, who's my 11-year-old, told me a story, and I actually even wrote down in my notes some of the phrases she used. And she said, I remember when I was seven. We were at Walmart, and it was me, Mom, and Emerson. And I had to go to the bathroom, so I went to the bathroom at Walmart, and Mom and Emerson were going to McDonald's in, in the Walmart. And so I was supposed to meet them, you know, walk out of the bathroom and walk down the Walmart. And I love, I love the way she tells the story. She said, I went to the bathroom, and then, you know, like I normally do, I got distracted by a bunch of stuff. And... Uh, and she said, I walked out, and I'd forgotten that they were going to McDonald's. And I got busy looking at things, and I walked out, and everybody was, there was nobody there. And she said, I remember being afraid. And then, <laughs> best part, she said, and then I turned, and there was that board with all the missing children. <laughs> she said, I thought, I'm going to be one of them. It was her telling the story. This year, I'm laughing, and she, tells, and she was like, and that made it worse. And she said, and then I... Then I turned and I looked and I saw Emerson in the McDonald's <coughs> and then I saw mom. And, th and this was the phrase she used. She said, and then I could breathe again. It's a great, some great words. Not coaching. She said, and then I could breathe again. In the midst of my fear, I saw my mom. The only thing that would have made the story more or an easier way to connect would have been me, because then we could have said, in the midst of her fear, she saw the Father. And that's, that's what meditation, that's what worship, that's what faith does. It's Peter, in the midst of the, of the winds, in the midst of the fear, sees the Father and gets out of the boat. When he looks at the circumstances and he looks at the fear and he listens to the giant who's already been beaten, he gives power back to the fear. It's faith is the antidote to fear, and worship is the soundtrack that it lives on. So if you're wrestling with fear, you've got some things to practice this week. Now, if that is a giant in your life, just, I mean, you know what's coming. Next week, we're moving on to something different. You may not have applications for messages for the next couple of weeks other than just learning it to maybe help somebody else. If this is your giant, you may need to 
stay here for weeks or for months in meditation and worship, letting fear, faith grow so they can kill fear. Let's pray, and we're, you're going to have about 20, 25 minutes to talk small group.